You are listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. Now step into the arena of ideas with your host, Dr. Brian Shelton. Coming to you from the mystic, majestic mountains of northwestern North Carolina, this is the Bellator Christie Podcast, where we take Christian truth into the arena of ideas. We want to thank you for joining us today. If you are uh, with us on the live stream, we especially welcome you. We discuss everything from theology, apologetics, biblical studies, philosophy, and a whole lot more. And so we want to welcome you to the podcast. If you'd like to take Bellator Christie with you on the go, uh, you're also able to, you're, you're able to do that, uh, catch the audio version of the podcast. We're available really anywhere that podcasts are found, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, the list goes on and on. So we encourage you to uh, subscribe and join us uh, as we discuss the issues that truly matter. I want to jump right into this podcast because we have two theological giants on the episode with us tonight, and we're discussing an issue that is of utmost importance in my mind. We're talking about the biblical canon as we go through this series on bibliology So how is it that we came to receive the New Testament canon as we have it? Uh, Well, there are two wonderful scholars with us, both of uh, of them teaching uh, at Liberty University, and we're talking about Dr. Leo Purser and Dr. Benjamin Laird. And we also want to talk about Dr. Laird's new book called Creating the Canon, uh, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament. This is an excellent book. I highly recommend you pick up a copy. And so, uh, welcome, Dr. Purser and Dr. Laird. Thank you for being on with us on the Bellator Christie Podcast. Glad to be here, Brian. Yeah, thanks for having us. My pleasure. So let's just jump right into this. Like I said, I want to give you guys the vast majority of the time here. When we speak of the New Testament canon, what, what is it we mean altogether? Yeah, folks use terms different ways, but usually when I use the term canon, I'm just referring to a collection, a specific collection of works. Sometimes people might refer to it as a list, you know, an authoritative list of of writings, but I tend to think of it as a collection. So rather than just, uh, you know, the, the vast volume of all the early Christian works that are orthodox, these are a specific group of writings that the church down through the centuries has recognized as authoritative scripture. So there's unique characteristics about it. Uh, They've been used in unique ways. They've been formative in the church's teaching and doctrine and practice over the centuries. So these writings have uh, stood above the rest in in many ways. And uh, the term can, of course, many of you know, it just comes from a a term that would mean something like standard. And uh, so these are the standard writings that the church has recognized. It's not as though the church hasn't, you know, we haven't benefited from other writings over the years. Uh, there's many Christian works. Uh, anyone who's been through a PhD program like you, Brian, you, you benefit from many, many books, but there's only these, uh, this elite body of works that have been recognized as authoritative scripture uh, by the church. Yeah, and in fact, I would add to that that uh, the idea of canon is, at least historically, is a very recent development. Um, the, the Greek word where we get canon from it was actually used as a measuring stick or, or like Dr. Laird said earlier, some some kind of standard. And uh, that was later applied, obviously, to this collection of books 
that Christians call scripture. Uh, so canon, it, it, the, literally the word can run the gamut from a variety of things to mean like a standard measuring stick, but I, I like to think of it uh, as a library. Uh, when we talk about the canon of scripture, we're talking about a library of books that have been, uh, been, been collected um, and are official authoritative texts for the Christian church. Yeah, and I would just add to what Leo said. We're just going to keep going to keep adding to what each other said. I think tonight, but, <laughs> but um, it just reminded me of uh, a place in Europe I really love to go. And I think about this every time I hear a description like Leo just provided. But if you go to Bern, Switzerland, one of my favorite uh, towns, they have these enormous clock towers, and you can actually walk through the the center of them. You know, you can't. I don't know if you can drive a car through them, but they're large enough you can walk through. And uh, bolted on the, the wall there on the inside of, the, in, of some of those towers are long iron rods that actually have measurements. And so the idea is back in the Middle Ages, you know, period, you could go there. If you had a dispute of, about, you know, the measurement of something, maybe cloth that you purchased or something, you could actually go there and look at the standard measurement to see, you know, if indeed you were cheated or you got the fair amount or something like that. So that's the kind of idea we're talking about. It started very literally as like a measuring rod. And then over time, it began to be used in a more figurative sense, like we use it today. Uh, figurative to uh, apply to, you know, a collection of writings, or as Leo said, a, a library of writings. That's another good way to put it. Yeah. And I like to think, too, that canon, uh, the, the the idea of canon carries with it uh, some some kind of authenticity for the group that, that accepts this particular grouping of materials. So while it is, I do think of the scripture, I love that measuring rod idea, and I'm, I'm now I want to go to Switzerland <laughs> because I like the idea that Scripture then becomes for us as Christians our measuring stick, right? It gives us some kind of measure to tell us how how things ought to be, how things are, uh, whether we're whether we're measuring up. Um, mm -hmm. I've noticed that canon is used in several places in the New Testament, usually with regards to a standard or a measure or even an authoritative rule of some sort. So all those, yeah, it's all those things. And uh, and, and like Ben said earlier, we're going to probably be doing this all night. So <laughs> he'll say something that prompts me and I'll say something that prompts him. So Brian, good luck. Yeah. <laughs> well, you guys prompted me to say something that I just clearly forgot at the outset, outset of the podcast, and that is happy birthday. To, to Dr. Benjamin Laird, uh, we just noticed oh. as we were getting prepared for the uh, podcast tonight that it's your birthday, so so I feel extra blessed to have you on the podcast on this special day. Well, thanks. I'm just old enough now that I'm not too excited about birthdays, <laughs> but uh, but thank you just the same. <laughs> but when you when you join the Graybeard contingent, you'll you'll yeah. appreciate them less. So. I'm on my way. I'm on my way for sure. <laughs> I've already reached the salt and pepper stage. I'm, I'm getting there. That's a doctor work, man. That's right. So in your book, uh, Creating the Canon, you mentioned the methods that the New Testament writers likely used when writing their books. Uh, how did the writers go about formulating their documents? And I found this a very fascinating aspect of your book. You brought up some things that I hadn't really considered, even like maybe a collection, which I think we're going to talk about that in a moment, a collection of, of books, and then the role that different people played in the formation of uh, this, these New Testament books. Yeah, it really is a, a fascinating subject in many ways, and sometimes we forget, you know, the people who wrote the scriptures, God used them in special ways, but they were, you know, ordinary people like us, and they would have used the regular kind of customs of that time, right, the conventions of that period of time, and 
what we know from the study of ancient Christian literature, or just any literature for that matter in the Greco-Roman world, is that oftentimes a lot of different people were involved in the process. And uh, so we don't want to assume that the writing process was exactly the same for every author or that, uh, you know, the composition of a gospel was just like the composition of an epistle. I assume there are some major differences there. But if we use an example of Paul, uh, we know that Paul actually worked with uh, many different people. And he's going to work with secretaries. He's going to work with letter carriers. There's going to be people that provide him information about what's going on in different churches and communities. So he's going to be working with a team all throughout uh, this period. It's a very lengthy period, actually multiple phases that are involved with this. So Paul is not just simply, you know, writing in isolation, writing on his own and doing everything. He's collaborating with people all through uh, his time in, in uh, different cities and uh, learning about the situation in churches by sending people out and having them come back to him and other uh, individuals and churches in faraway places are coming to him with reports like we read about in scripture. So there was quite a bit uh, involved with it. And that's just that's just the letters of Paul. We haven't even got, got into, you know, what's going on with the Gospels there. So I threw out some some basic things. Maybe if you want to pin me towards a point me to a more specific kind of aspect of that. But the main thing I guess we could start with is just how uh, how many people were involved with this. It was actually quite a elaborate process here. One of the things I found interesting, I think it was Craig Keener who wrote, I can't remember what book it was that he said it, but he's talking about just the sheer cost of uh, writing a book by the size of, let's say, the Gospel of Matthew, about Gospel of Mark. Mm-hmm. I think he estimated it would have been something comparable to perhaps six thousand dollars in today's in today's uh, term. So I mean, such an undertaking was, uh, or such a, a a writing project was was a big undertaking. I, I would assume. Yeah, and there's another book too. Uh, if you go to, I think it's E. Randolph Richards and a couple other scholars. They they co-wrote a intro to Paul called Rediscovering Paul, and. Uh, Richards in that book, and I think even in one of his books on secretaries, uh, he actually estimates how much it likely cost in U.S. dollars for each of these to be produced, right? Each of the uh, epistles, at least, uh, of Paul to be produced. And it would have actually been quite a process because, you know, you can't just go to your word processor and type it out and, and send it off electronically. You have to have all the materials that were necessary. You have to mix certain ingredients to form the ink of that day. Uh, certain writing uh, utensils would have to be used. And then, uh, in most cases, we know Paul followed this custom. There would have actually been a professional scribe, or at least one who was professionally trained, had professional skills, uh, to actually complete the composition. So it seems that Paul would actually dictate his text to a scribe. And, you know, if Paul was just paying, you know, by the line, which is typically how it was done back then, uh, that would have been quite a tab, you know? So, a work like Romans or First Corinthians, Second Corinthians—they're pretty lengthy, and so it would have been quite a quite a bill for for Paul. So my hunch is that uh, individuals would do this on a voluntary voluntary basis. So we can all probably think of individuals in our local church that may have some expertise in something, you know, a handyman, and he might come into the church on Saturday and you know fix some leaky pipes or something, and or maybe paint a, paint a room or, you know, just volunteer basis and not charge the church for it. So I think there's a good chance that uh, individuals like that, maybe Tersus, who's mentioned in Romans, uh, may have served in a similar role. 
But uh, yeah, writing actually was a very expensive, relatively expensive compared to uh, today, for sure. And that, that brings up a question on my end, too. Think, thinking through the process of what Paul is doing, um, how likely is it? We know Paul was a fairly educated man, obviously, he's a Pharisee. This is, this is a guy who had an education. How likely was it that the people around him, these collaborators, if we want to call them that, they were working with him on these letters, uh, were also, I mean, Tertius, since he acknowledges he's writing, clearly this is a person who knows his, his, uh, his skill. But what mm-hmm. about the others? Would you, would you think, I mean, obviously we don't have any, I don't guess, historical record about Timothy or anybody, but do you think they'd be fairly well-educated? I guess if they're writing, they would have had to be somewhat educated. Yeah, I think so. And of course, being educated is different than uh, being able to compose text as a scribe. Those are two very, very different things. So Paul could have been, you know, very well educated. We know he was. We have every indication to think he was. But uh, handwriting was considered like a special skill. And, you know, I know that's true, because if you look at my handwriting, you know, I have a PhD, but you don't want me to handwrite anything. You're not going to be able to read it. And uh, so I'm very thankful to the Lord for word processors. But, you know, the Apostle Paul would have not had those skills, it seems. And uh, so even individuals who are very well trained, people like Seneca, Cicero, Paul, it seems, they would actually use and enlist uh, secretaries uh, because they, for a number of reasons, for one, it's it's a convenience issue. So the secretaries would have had all of those uh, materials at their disposal. But in addition to that, they're very skilled at uh, not just not just completing a text that looks professional, had a tighter script and you know very well organized, and you know they could draw basically a, a straight line. You know, it looked like a, a very straight script from left to right there with you know tight edges and that type of thing. So it looked appealing to the eye. But also, they were very skilled in uh, just literary conventions. Uh, it's almost like a, if you go to talk to a lawyer, they know how to like phrase certain things and how to make transition statements, how to be concise. And so they're almost like writing coaches in a way. But you know, even someone like Paul, or as I said, Seneca, Cicero, they could use them, and they they did use them often uh, for the conveniences that they serve. So actually, there's there's no uh, kind of disconnect there between ones or no relationship between one's uh, education and then whether or not they use a scribe. We actually find that those in the, the higher uh, kind of escalons of society actually use scribes quite a bit. So there's almost kind of an apologetic that you could construct because I know many people have used the argument that that uh, the New Testament authors, like the apostles, wouldn't have been able to write uh but it sounds to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, that uh, really anybody could employ the use of a scribe to, to write any, a book or write a letter or anything of that sort, regardless of where their education level may or may not be. Yeah, that's true. A couple things we could say about that. There's evidence for what you just said, by the way. If you go look at the Oxyrhynchus papyri, and you could actually go online, and you know, if you have a hard time sleeping at night, you can go and look them up and look at the digital images of all these papyri. I think it's uh, either Oxford or Cambridge has a website where they have downloads, uh, images uploaded there uh, that you can download and, and or at least view and uh, see them. And then, of course, uh, a lot of these have been published uh, in hardback copies. And so you could actually look at the uh, translations and uh, look at the, uh, the original Greek that's on those and, and see a lot of them actually, we have these letters in these, uh, in these, uh, in this collection a lot of them would end with something like uh, a note by a scribe that might say something like, so-and-so does not know letters, 
you know, signed and then the secretary would write his name. So in those cases, it was clear that the uh, author, if we could call it that, uh, was dictating, you know, the basic things he wanted to communicate to the scribe, and the scribe was forming that and then uh, composing it and then sending it off. So at that point, he might read the letter back to the individual and make sure he was comfortable with that, and he approved it, and then he would send it on. But I get the sense with Paul that uh, he wasn't actually following that kind of uh, method there, because if you read Romans and compare it to, say, Galatians and you know, compare it to another letter, you'll actually see there is a, a Pauline style. And uh, yeah. same would be true if you look at, you know, John's writings. And you can see a correlation between the Gospel of John and, say, you know, the first epistle of John. So it's, if, if it was the case that they were using a different secretary for every writing, and the writing had, and the, and the secretary had, you know, firm control of the, of the words that were used and the style, then you might see a different style with every writing. But you actually see a discernible style that's kind of uh, woven throughout all of Paul's writings. So that tells me that uh, Paul was in control, right? So he's not just going to give someone some basic points and then someone's going to run with it. Uh, Paul was, was, was clearly calling, uh, calling the shots there, and I think he was dictating exactly what he wanted, and he's going to carefully review each of the completed documents before it's dispatched as well. Yeah, and when you, when you consider that, even though Paul might not have had the hand to write, uh, and, there, and some people speculate that he may have had eye issues too, and so writing was difficult for him. I, I don't know how accurate that is, but the point is uh, Paul would be able to read. And the likelihood is that after Paul had uh, had dictated or or expressed this this idea to the writer, uh, he would have read through it, right, and then made corrections as needed. Or if you know, if he saw things in there that that perhaps Paul didn't want it the way it was worded, he he would probably say, "Strike that. Let's do something else." Mm-hmm. What do you think, man? Might be on the right yeah, track. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. So Paul's not just going to share some basic you know bullet points with someone, and then they're going to write it up, kind of like if the you know, a politician has a speech maker. He's not just going to say, hey, I want to hit on this, this, and this, and this. Go make a speech for me. And then, you know, it's just, it's crafted apart from his uh, influence. But I think actually Paul would have had a firm control of this and dictated what he wanted to include. And there would have been times, I think, the, the secretary could have said, well, maybe we could word it this way or that way. Yeah. But it, there might have been some, you know, conversation there along the way. I'm happy with that. But Paul would have clearly, uh, his his style his personality really comes out in each of these letters. And uh, it's possible that he used different people uh, throughout. So we know Tursus was involved with Romans. Perhaps others helped him. I think that uh, Luke could have possibly served as a secretary for one or multiple letters. We're not exactly sure. Um, I wish we had you know, someone identify their name in each of these letters. Uh, we just have Romans. But I, I think there's probably several people uh, along the line that would have assisted Paul in this way. And how likely is it that Paul had a scribe of sorts, I don't mean to imply that he had a guy that followed him everywhere he went, but someone in his entourage who was one of his regular writers. That that seems likely to me, given the, the 10 or 12 so people that Paul mentions on a regular basis as being part of his group. It seems likely he would have a, a writer present, not, not saying Tertius per se, but somebody like that. It's, that seems logical to me. Yeah, I think he does, and actually I think he had two gospel writers with him uh, throughout many of his missionary journeys. So we know that uh, the first half of his missionary career, uh, he actually had John Mark with him, right? So John Mark uh, was there in the early going, and John Mark is there in Jerusalem. Uh, We know that he went with Paul and Barnabas on at least the first part of the missionary journey. Can't say that he was there the whole time, but he 
he was least on the first part of that journey, and then uh, he he did go on Paul's uh, first journey to Jerusalem uh, to deliver that first uh, relief offering. So he had a connection with Paul in the early going, and uh, then Luke begins to travel with Paul, you know, somewhere in the second journey there, and uh, was with Paul throughout many years, even through his final years there. So. Luke uh, seems to have been uh, definitely skilled as a writer, but possibly even as a secretary. I get that sense from him. And John Mark seems to have been as well. Uh, in fact, uh, early church fathers would refer to Mark as the hermeneutes, the secretary or the penman uh, who uh, assisted the apostle Peter. And uh, so they, that's how the, the gospel of Mark was often described. That's how his role was often uh, portrayed in the early church. So, Mark and Luke would have been two examples of that. Maybe we could speculate and say, you know, others as well may, maybe had a, uh, a gifting in that area or some training there. We're just not sure. But at least Mark and Luke are two individuals that seem pretty promising. Yeah, we know Apollos was something of a speaker, a writer mm-hmm. of some sort. Yeah. Um, whether or not he could write, I guess, is, is questionable. But yeah, his, his, uh, his way with words, if he was also a writer, would have made him a potential candidate for some of Paul's letters, I guess, because he did, he did travel with Paul. Um, yeah, I, I think you're onto something there. I mean, I, I just speculating out loud, you have Barnabas, who uh, is, is connected to Levitical or at least priestly families, and the, the priests certainly had their share of scribes among them. So Barnabas could be a candidate of sorts, I guess, in some ways. We just don't know enough information about most of these people to know. That's the yeah, problem. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why, you know, it's uh, I'm, I'm more optimistic about Mark and Luke because we have Gospels and, you know, established writings we can look to. But, you know, people like Apollos or Silas or, uh, you know, Timothy, we don't have any writings that they compose. So it's 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 a bit speculative when you get to those names. And, well, I, and I think it's important to con- keep in mind what you said earlier, too. Paul's not just consigning this off to someone and saying, Here's an outline of what I want to say to Corinth. Go write me a letter and bring it back to me. Paul's giving input onto what he wants said. And, um, and in fact, it, it seems to me that you're right. It's very specific input because you can actually see meter. You can see wordplay. You can see uh, constant kind of word usages throughout the, the letters of Paul. Um, and, I, and I think that's a, that's a clear evidence that Paul has, a, a like you said, a tight grip on it. Um, in fact, it, it's interesting to me that uh, the, the, the Pauline letters are, are such a tight group in some ways that they, they even have similar emotional feel, similar tone. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, I think clearly you're right on the, the issue of Paul kind of having a tight grip on that. Um, but it, it's fascinating to think of a community sort of, for mm-hmm. lack of better terms, creating these documents. I think that that's the part of your book that really fascinates me the more I look at it because I, I, I realize Paul didn't sit in a study carol somewhere or at a desk in an office somewhere and say, I got to crank out a letter to the Corinthians tonight, you know, like a yeah, yeah. doctoral student or a, a grad student might do. <laughs> um, he probably had these conversations in the middle of ministry, in the middle of the day, and as he had opportunity to talk to a scribe, right? I mean, yeah, definitely. And, and Paul is living and ministering around a lot of people. So uh, he wasn't like a, a modern, how do I put this, like a modern uh, speaker who might, you know, fly into a city and stay in a private hotel room and speak and then leave. He's going to live in someone's home. He's going to stay there. He's going to minister. He's going to work in the community. So he's uh, he's definitely integrated in, and assimilated into that culture. And so when he writes a letter like Romans, everybody's going to know he's writing it, and he's right. going to work with a lot of different people. That would have sparked interest 
in it right away. And uh, there would have been no shortage of people, I think, that he could have called upon if needed to assist in one way or another in the process there. Well, and well, can I ask a controversial question, Brian? I'm just curious of something. Um, could Phoebe in Romans 16 have been, I mean, I don't know how um, skilled women may have been in writing in the first century. That's not something I really paid attention to, but... Uh, is it possible that someone, because she is a benefactor, a, a patron of sorts to people, so clearly she has a financial role in some ways with things, but is it possible that a woman could have been a scribe in some cases, you think? I mean, or am I going too far with that? It's possible. Um, in Jewish culture, it would be highly unlikely, right? Okay. So in Jewish culture, it's it's primarily or almost exclusively men who would do that. And uh, still, almost entirely men in the Greco-Roman world, but... Right. You know, perhaps you could find some examples outside of that, but uh, it would be it'd be rare, I would say. But now, uh, on that note, one thing you mentioned in the book was about letter, letter carriers, and I believe mm-hmm. if I'm reading it right, and correct me if I'm wrong, in the the letter carrier for the book of Romans was was a female uh, in in the last chapter. So, what role did letter carriers have with the whole process? Maybe not necessarily. Uh, the, the writing process, but what role did they have in the distribution of, uh, of these different texts? Yeah, very good. And before I answer your question, I just have to work in these resources for your readers. Right? So, <laughs> so let me just mention a, a few books if you have folks out there who want to read more about this that, that will go actually into more detail than, than I'll do. I give kind of a cursory you know, summary of this in my book, but uh, if you want to know more about secretaries, Specifically with uh, New Testament in the New Testament world, I would I would go to E. Randolph Richards' book. Uh, he's got a book called Paul in First Century Letter Writing. That's just a, a good classic work. It's it's been out about twenty years now, and that's that's one I would highly recommend. And then also uh, Steve Reese, I think is his name. Um, I read this book about four or five years ago, and it came out, and it's excellent. And it's it's more expensive, so if you have a good theological library, that's a good place to go. But Steve Reese's book. I forgot the title. I think it's called something like, oh, it's uh, Paul's Large Letters, I think is the title of it, playing off the language there at the end of Galatians. Uh, but that's part of the Library of New Testament Studies series. Uh, so those are two books that I would highly recommend uh, for that. And then, uh, let me see, you asked, I forgot about your question. You asked about uh, Phoebe, is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah Letter carriers. Letter carriers. Yeah, about the role of letter yeah. carriers, yeah. And uh, with that, uh, yeah, at times they're actually going to be entrusted with actually representing the letter, uh, the letter writer. So it, it's actually a bigger task than what we might expect, right? So we kind of think of it as like a postal worker. You know, if a postal worker comes to my door or my mailbox and he has a letter that was sent from another state, he's just going to drop it there and then his task is done and he's, <laughs> he's off to the next house. Uh, but with a letter carrier, they would often come and they were in a way representatives of who sent them, of the author. So they were known to actually provide uh, supplementary information uh, to those who were the initial readers of that. And we also have to remember, too, that when Paul's letters arrived, we believe they would have actually been read publicly. Uh, You know, the letter carrier is not just going to say, here's a letter, and then they all just kind of go home and, you know, privately read it. Or maybe there's a copy in their local church, and they all come by, and it's just a reading document, you know, nothing else. But it would have been actually publicly read to the congregation. And at times, a letter carrier could have actually done that. So a letter carrier could have read the letter. We don't know that that's always what happened in the case of Paul's writings. 
could have happened sometimes. Uh, on other occasions, it could have been that a local church elder could have read it. But either way, regardless of who uh, read the letter, we think there's a good chance that the letter carrier could have actually provided supplementary information, right? So you imagine you're hearing, you're in uh, Corinth, and you're hearing 1 Corinthians read, and you have a lot of questions about, you know, what Paul stated about, you know, tongues or, uh, you know, sign gifts or the Lord's Supper or baptism or whatever it is there. There's a lot of questions we might have about the subjects there. But the uh, letter carrier could have actually provided some extra extra information to the congregation, maybe uh, provide some clarity on some key points, uh, provided uh, some additional you know information about you know Paul's intention there, that type of thing. So they would have actually been, uh, because of that, I think they would have been people that knew Paul very well. And uh, Paul is going to spend some good amount of time with them kind of explaining you know, the intention of the letter, elaborating on points, kind of coaching him through, you know, what he was thinking about, uh, you know, issues that were going on in those places. So, again, they're they're representing Paul. And uh, so, in a way, they're, they're actually like Paul's envoys or Paul's ambassadors that are going out with Paul's letters, and then they could provide supplementary information. So, another good resource, you can just probably Google it, but uh, Peter Head, H-E-A-D, Peter Head has written some very good things, very helpful things about letter carriers. And I think you can probably find them online if I remember correctly, but I don't remember the title, but there's the author at least if you guys want to uh, learn a little more about that. Excellent information. So I, w- I want to address this this question to both of you. Who were the original readers of the New Testament writings? You, you mentioned this, uh, going to some discussions on this issue. Uh, so how would you, you got both of you answer that? Who were the original readers of the New Testament writings? Or maybe the original audience. Well, clearly, um, Paul and his entourage would have been the first readers. I mean, if you really want to talk about original, um, because if Paul's using a scribe, if he's if he's having these conversations as, as Ben's already depicted uh, in his everyday life as he's traveling and ministering, then uh, the the very first readers would have been those folks who were helping him craft these things. Clearly. Um, I, I do think the predominantly, if I've, if I've understood Paul's letters correctly, uh, the churches that received these letters were predominantly Gentile with some Jews mixed in, uh, Christian churches, obviously, uh, Greco-Roman backgrounds. But again, even there, uh, as Ben just noted, some of these letters would have been read out loud to the congregation. It doesn't mean that it would have been you know, in, in necessarily in an enclosed space or even in a place where other people couldn't hear. So. Um, readers is a hard word to answer to be honest with you because in the first century these things were read out loud mm. and heard more than they were read yeah. so um, I, you know I'm not I don't know I, I've never seen a good um, study on uh, the, the literary knowledge or the, the literacy of the first century I know that people have uh, said anything from you know 50, you know 20% could actually read and write uh, I, I don't. I, I have no idea how to how to make sure that data is correct. But the point would be, most people at Corinth, for example, couldn't have picked up Paul's letter, read it if they wanted to. Right. Uh, they may not have had the skill to. Uh, so when you say readers, what we really mean is recipients or hearers recipients. in most cases. Yeah. Would, would that be would that be accurate? Yeah, that's exactly right. We think a minority of the population was able to re- would be able to read a text, and then. Even beyond that, you have the issue of just, like we talked about before, how expensive and time-consuming it was to produce text. So even if you could read a, a New Testament writing, 
there's a good chance you may not have access to it. So it takes a long time for these letters to begin to uh, work their way around the different uh, churches and uh, in the first and second centuries then. So uh, that's something to keep in mind. But yeah, the first readers, or I should say the first recipients is probably a better word to put use there, uh, would have actually been hearers. And I think that in many cases, it would have actually been those in the local area, as I point out in the book. Uh, so someone like Paul, when he's in, in the city of Corinth, and he's writing to the church in Rome, I think there's a very good chance that uh, those in the local community there would have actually heard the letter of Romans at the time that Paul completed the writing. Uh, so it wasn't as though they had to wait for the letter to work its way to Rome and then back. I think there's a good chance that those in Rome, or I should, I should say those in Corinth, would have uh, known about Paul writing this, and they would have been naturally interested, and uh, I think they would have had opportunities to hear it read. We know public writing, uh, I should say public reading, took place quite a bit. Uh, there's a book, to go back to resources again, there's a book by Brian Wright, and he talks about communal writing, or I should say communal reading, and he talks about how this was common in Christian communities, just like it was in the greater Greco-Roman world. They would often have uh, text read to the public because a lot of people didn't have access to them or couldn't read them. And so we think Christians followed a similar practice and would often have reading sessions. And that could be, you know, more unofficial kind of informal uh, settings or in the local church. We know this happened a bit, too. So we even find in the local in in the Gospels, uh, I should say in the, in the New Testament epistles, there's actually instruction for the letters to be you know read publicly. Paul will admonish Timothy to have the letters publicly read, and uh, there's there's references to that in the Thessalonian epistles. And you go to the end of Colossians 4, and there's a reference to another letter of Paul that he wanted them to hear. And so uh, we have uh, quite a bit of indication that uh, these reading sessions took place both inside the church and outside the church in more informal settings. And so I think, you know, somewhere like Corinth would have been ripe for something like that. And so... When we talk about the original recipients, I think it actually would have started in most cases where the author was, and then it would have branched out from there. I never will forget one of a, a, a really wise and a fantastic professor uh, taught me at Liberty, whose name is Leo Purser, <laughs> about the importance of community uh, in the New Testament. And, you know, we, we'll oftentimes look at it as, indiv as individualized. And, and this is one of the things as I was reading your book that really brought me back into, almost into Dr. Purser's class as we were talking about the role of community and, and how important it is. And as I was, you know, my dissertation was on, you know, oral traditions, and, and even that involved a community. And so I think it, one of the things that's really stood out to me through this whole endeavor is is the important role, not just at an individual place, but the entire community played in the formation of the New Testament, even the even the books, even though you may have had an author, you, you had a community coming around it, you know, a, a group, a collaborative group of individuals who were the recipients. It's, it's really telling to me the importance that the uh, first century church placed on community. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, the community is going to contribute to the process. Uh, well, it's a lengthy process, right? So their contribution doesn't end just with the end of composition. There's going to be people that are going to uh, disseminate the letters, like we said, the letter carriers, but then it even continues. You have a lot of uh, Christian missionaries who go around uh, to different churches, not just starting new churches, but taking these writings with them. You have a lot of copyists early on. So this is a 
this is a big team effort, you know, to get the gospel out, to get these writings all throughout the, the Christian world. So definitely. Yeah, when you consider the technology of the day, um, this was quite an audacious undertaking and, and with the outcome of 58,000 or more copies of New Testament documents, right? Well, 58,000 manuscripts, I think, but copies-wise, even bigger, right? Um, clearly, this was not something that Paul did by himself or, or John or any of the other authors of, of, of New Testament documents. But also, it, it, again, I think this is, in my mind, this is they, they took the technology of the day, letter writing, uh, paper, ink, and they um, improvised it for the purpose of ministry. Uh, so I, this is one of the things I try to impress on my students today is the reality of, you know, we have benefits now that obviously Paul didn't. I've often wondered what Paul could accomplish with a Zoom meeting, for example. Wow, yeah, isn't that <laughs> you know, true? Um, right? <laughs> uh, and yet look at what he did accomplish with the the materials he had. But what he did is he took, he, he I don't want to say improved upon, but he took the technology of the, of the day and utilized it for ministry purposes. And I, and I think this is at least one of the important takeaways for me from what, what Ben has accomplished with this book is a reminder that we've been given also a technological opportunity. And what we do with this can matter for ministry, it can matter for, for making the word known, by making scripture more accessible and available to people. Uh, but yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. What Paul did, this is not only amazing, it's, it, when you think about it, it's, it's clear that there was a, a, a divine superintendence over this process. Uh, that so many people were involved in this and that it resulted in what we have here as a New Testament, for example. That's, that's pretty cool when you think about it. That's it is. Amazing. Another thing I would add there, too, that just shows God's hand in all this is, you know, Paul would only write if he couldn't get somewhere at a certain time. Mm-hmm. You know, his preference was always to be there in person with the people. And uh, I think it was, you know, Polycarp in his letter to the Philippians, he says, you know, something along the lines of, and I'm paraphrasing here, when Paul was with you, he instructed you, but when he was absent from you, he wrote you letters. And he uses the plural there. So, you know, letter writing was always a concession. It was always just something you would do if you were forced into it. If Paul was imprisoned, if he was engaged in ministry elsewhere and couldn't just drop everything and travel, he would write a letter. So I think in a way it's it's... Fascinating to think about that, uh, you know, we have many letters in the New Testament today, in part because Paul was inconvenienced, but God was able to use that inconvenience for his purposes, right? So, just really interesting to think about how all this fits together. I think there's a deep spiritual principle that you brought out there. <laughs> Definitely, yeah, for sure. So, how were the 27, so we looked. we look at the composition of these books, how did the 27 books of the New Testament form into one collaborative canonical collection? That's a, yeah, that's, that's a, a big question, question right? <laughs> <laughs> I'll let Ben answer that one. <laughs> that's the big question everybody wants to know, right? What happened, right? So, you know, there's different ideas. A lot of people think that maybe this was just a kind of uh, once-for-all decision by maybe a church council or something. And I don't see the evidence for that. I think that what happened early on was that there was a natural pull or a natural uh, gravitation towards the writings that were connected to the apostolic community. So when Paul writes, there's going to be a natural interest in, in his writings. And so they're going to be, they're going to naturally be inclined to uh, elevate the importance of those. Or when Matthew writes his gospel, right, as an apostle, there's going to be a natural affinity for that. So 
early on, we just have a natural interest in apostolic writings. And what happens eventually is they're going to be able to use the technology of that day. And uh, during the early centuries of the church, we have the codex form. And uh, there were different you know, styles of the codex. There was, uh, you know, you could actually use uh, papyri leaves and you could, uh, you know, stack them and bind them. And that, that was a great invention because you could actually combine multiple writings into one volume. And so what they naturally then began to do was uh, place the writings of one author or a group of texts that had something to do with each other in, in one codex. So the codexes or the codices were very, they were rarely large enough to hold, you know, an entire New Testament, but they usually would carry, you know, maybe one gospel or in, in actually many cases they would carry all four gospels or they could contain the entire Pauline letter corpus or maybe the Catholic epistles or Acts or Revelation, but one of these units. And so that's how the New Testament really circulated for actually most of church history. It's kind of a surprise to people. They think this is just an early church thing. Wow. But actually, all the way until the time of the printing press, the majority of biblical manuscripts would contain just one smaller canonical unit. So that would be, you know, the fourfold gospel. That was the most common. The, uh, the letters of Paul, that could be another collection. Uh, and so these letters began to circulate, and uh, these codices would, would circulate with just those smaller units. And then it's just a matter of time before larger codices are formed, and they begin to combine collections. And then when the printing press is introduced, now, now we have what we need to do this more consistently. And so the printing press allowed you know, printers to produce large copies of Scripture that had the entire you know, biblical canon. Uh, if you're writing by hand, that's going to be quite a chore to have all 66 books or, you know, all 27 books of the New Testament. That's quite a bit. So, uh, actually, you know, you mentioned a few minutes ago, Leo, how many manuscripts we have. I think you said something like 5,800 or somewhere along those lines. Mm -hmm. But actually what's interesting is we only have about 60 manuscripts that we believe included the entire New Testament in their original form. Only 60 and of those 60, only 10 had the Old Testament as well. So it was exceedingly rare to have, you know, an entire Bible. So in most cases, again, it's just it's circulating. Manuscripts are circulating in smaller units. And then those units are, begin to be conceptually linked. And then after a while, it's actually more, you know, of a tangible link because uh, you actually have the printing press that can combine them very carefully. So... Uh, uh, I should say, practically combine them into into one document. So, I like I like to describe the canon as a collection of collections. I think that's the best way to think about it. It's not as though the canon was just invented one day and they said, "Hey, you know, which book should we include?" And they come up with twenty seven, and there you go. It's actually a very natural process, which started with a desire to have apostolic writings that led to the small units of text of apostolic writings, and then we have them kind of emerge into one larger collection down the road. And remember, this process technically started during the lifetime of the apostles. I mean, if we take Peter seriously, the second Peter, he talks about the letters, plural, of Paul. Uh, I'm not saying that he had a, a, him, himself a total collection of all 13 letters, but he had more than one. And so somebody somewhere was collecting letters. Uh, ben mentioned earlier that Paul tells the Colossian church to be sure and read a letter he sent to another church. Um, it's not unlikely at all that these churches would pull their resources and make copies of each other's letters 
to have to read aloud in their congregation. Um, so yeah, I think uh, the 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 thing you know when I was a kid, I used to think that the the New Testament or the biblical canon as we currently have it, sixty six books, kind of just dropped out of heaven in somebody's lap one day, and we all went, oh look, the Word of God. Um, none of that is how it happened at all. Uh, there's a there's definitely a process involved here, and in, in the process, the church paid attention. The, the people that were using these documents paid attention to apostolic authority. They paid attention to the the content of the books. Uh, so there there were there were details that for them the teaching that was there, um, who it was connected to, all these things I think played a role. But as they became collected into larger codices, as as Ben was describing it. They began to take on even, I guess, for lack of better terms, even more authority. Because now you had a book of stuff as opposed to a couple of letters that somebody in the church might have at home. Um, yeah, when you think about it, it's, it's amazing. Paul says to Timothy, bring me the parchments, bring me bring me the scrolls. Uh, even Paul didn't have what we would consider a whole Old Testament. You know, He wasn't walking around with the, the Pentateuch or the Torah and, and the, the, the rest of the, the Tanakh in his back pocket. That was not a, a possibility for him. So Paul probably didn't have access, unless he went to a synagogue where he could access different scrolls, probably didn't have access to the, the whole Old Testament like the, the three of us would. Um, and certainly within the first few centuries of the church, um, very few churches, if any, would have the full, what we consider New Testament canon, sitting somewhere on a podium. Uh, that seems likely to me. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't want to think of... The, what I want us to avoid is this idea that canon is, was a decision, like, you know, people, they had a ballot. Do we accept <laughs> the Epistles of Barnabas or not? Yes, no. You know, make your choice. That's not what's going on here. Um, it, it's 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 a kind of a, a divine selection process. As the church is using these and find these used of God in their midst, they adapt these books for liturgical, uh, for, for um, teaching purposes and so on. And, and so to say, for example, in the 4th century, somebody de declared, behold, the Bible, uh, no, that's probably not the process at all. Yeah, yeah you either have a, a, an extrinsic model, which is, you know, there's some kind of external threat to the church. And so the power brokers of the day, the religious authorities and, you know, some city all kind of get together and uh, decide what should be part of the collection. And then they just establish it once and for all. Uh, you know, so, so a lot of people have that mindset and they think maybe it was, you know, the Christological debates in the fourth century, you know, heresy going around like Arius or something, or maybe it was earlier in the second century. A lot of scholars are inclined to think that maybe Marcion in the mid second century threatened the church. And so the church responded uh, with the creation of a canon, that type of thing. But I actually think it, it wasn't some external threat. I think it was actually a very natural process. Like I said before, I think they were drawn to apostolic teaching. And we see evidence for that in, you know, the, the New Testament. If you go to Acts chapter 2, you know, Acts 2.42, one of the first things that it mentions there is that they were rallying around the apostles' teaching. And so that included not just, uh, you know, spoken the spoken word, but the written word as well. Uh, and so these texts, you know, the Pauline epistles, the Gospels, these are all part of apostolic teaching that the church would have gravitated to during that time. And, and no doubt the churches recognized the authority of God behind these texts as well. As well. So um, there, there was, although I don't know of a test for, inter, for inspiration, for example, I, I don't know of that. We do know that Paul speaks of Scripture being God-breathed, 
and and it seems to me like the church gravitated towards those texts that they 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 understood to be given to them by God through these mm-hmm. apostolic witnesses through through their 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 ministries, and uh, so yeah, you have a guy in second century like Marcion who comes up with a list of canon, but you'll notice that his list, I don't know that he called it a canon, that, that's mm-hmm. my word, I probably should have said that, but he had a list of books that he used, but his list was made basically from books we would consider apostolic, mm-hmm. and uh, although he did change some of those books from, from what I understand about history, this you know, Marcion understood the importance of, of, a, of a grouping of texts that carried weight, mm-hmm. and, and I certainly think the apostolic writings did that. So that would be, if you wanted to look at the beginnings of canon, if you want to call it that, certainly the, the apostolic connection is key, in my opinion. Yeah, definitely. And we find that in the early church writings. You know, there's a lot of famous statements to that effect. We have, you know, Justin Martyr in the second century, you know, stating things in his, you know, first apology, things like, uh, you know, to paraphrase, he'll say, people come from all the villages in the countryside and they, they gather on the day called Sunday, the first day of the week, and they... They uh, read the memoirs of the apostles along with the prophets and the law, and uh, as much as time permits, you know. So I'm just kind of paraphrasing there. So it emphasis on the writings of the apostles, and then I think it's First Clement, uh, 42, section 42 there, that mentions how God sent Jesus. You see this whole chain that here that's really fascinating. God sent Jesus to us. Jesus sends out the twelve, and so in other words, the twelve are the link to God in a way. <laughs> at least to Christ, because they were directly commissioned by Christ, and Christ was sent by the Father. So the idea is if you can uh, heed the instruction of the apostles, that's divine, because it actually goes back then to God the Father himself through Christ, of course. Guys, this is fantastic. You've made this podcast so easy for me, because we've just gone down the list of questions. This has been <laughs> great. I, I love this. I, in, in the in the last about, we got about, what, five, six minutes left. I, let, me, let me close by asking you this question, and this is posed to both of you. How confident are you in that we have the correct books in the New Testament canon? That's a that's a loaded question, Brian. <laughs> um, I am not an open canon kind of guy, so uh, let me just say right off the bat that uh, that I think the canon is indeed closed. Um I think, as, as, as Ben described earlier, we can trust the, the providential uh, supervision of the process. Mm-hmm. Um, to me, uh, you know, the, the church has debated texts before. I'm not going to de- deny uh, that's, that's true. They did. Uh, but in general, uh, the, 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 the church usage, the, 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 the church universal, looked at these 27 texts and saw God's hand in them. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, again, I don't think they were voting and saying, this is our canon, we're not going any further, I think they were acknowledging what they saw God doing here, and these 27 books formed the the, the, the grouping of books we call now Scripture. Um, but yeah, I, I, I'm confident that they're, they're, we don't need anything else. Uh, in fact, I've told my students on more than one occasion, if, if, um, if unanimity was uh, among the church's un- unanimous usage or, 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 or agreement on these documents, um, if we happen to find, say, one of the letters of Paul to Corinth that we don't have, because Paul mentions he wrote more than the two we have, um, we might even be able to determine that it's indeed a letter from Paul himself and, and from his group, right? Mm-hmm. We might even be able to say, yeah, this is Pauline language. But my guess is to get a, a, a unanimous uh, agreement from the church, <laughs> not going to happen. 
probably not going to happen. <laughs> right. So for me, the the canon is effectively closed because uh, the church voted years ago on that. And yeah. I, so I, I think we can, I, I, I'm confident that the, the books we have are, are the ones we need. How's that? Amen. Yeah, and I, I would echo what he said there. I would also concur that uh, the canon is closed. And, you know, there's some characteristics of the canonical writings that are not shared by anything else. Okay, so you won't find, and I've, I often tell my students this, I said, if you can find any other writing out there that we can, you know, on good historical grounds attribute to an apostle, then I'll be happy to, you know, recognize that as part of my canon here. And I've, I've never had to expand my New Testament, right? So I would say there are no works outside the, the New Testament canon that the early church widely believed to be apostolic. You know, there were other writings out there that were disputed or were read in certain communities, but you don't have any widespread uh, consensus on any book uh, outside the canon that was recognized as apostolic or received as scripture early on. So I, I'm, not, I'm not concerned about any writing outside the New Testament being apostolic. I don't think you can make a solid case for any single writing um, to have those characteristics. More controversial would be the works in the New Testament, right? Because there's a lot of works that are disputed today. But I think there's, uh, and that would be, you know, another topic for another day. But I think there's a solid case that can be made because the early church did this. A solid case that could be made for the authenticity of each of the works in the New Testament. So each of the works in the New Testament, the early church believed to actually be connected in one way or another, either directly or indirectly to that original apostolic community. So I think we're on good grounds to affirm that today, just like the early church did. And, and I think that goes back to what we were talking about earlier, Ben, of this community of people that Paul relied on to help, in Paul's case at least, to create these texts. Um, the church recognized that community is apostolic. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's not just um, did Paul write it? Because, because when I was a kid, that's how I thought of it. Paul sitting down with his parchment and his pen and writing but rather is the source of this an apostolic source. And, the you know, I trust the, the early church. They were much closer to those uh, those realities than I am. And uh, so I don't see any reason to second-guess that. Uh, to me, uh, I think you're right. This is We're firm. Uh, I don't have a problem with that. It, it, they were much more astute than maybe we realize. I, I think that's <laughs> yeah, the only yeah, thing they, so. would, they would... Uh, they would really analyze these texts thoroughly, and uh, in most cases, they're not going to accept them unless they were convinced that they were apostolic. Mm -hmm. and, and can we also just mention what a miracle it is? Uh, it was to to get the church to you, nearly unanimously yeah, was, agree on on anything, because you know you, we we see today divisions and splits and, and all these different types of things going on. The fact that it was unanimously concurred. Uh, that these that these books belong in the New Testament, to me is is miraculous, and I think part of the divine process of it all. Yeah, absolutely, I agree with that. Well, Doctor Laird, Doctor Purser, thank you so much for. I can't even believe that the hour's gone. I mean, my goodness, where did the time go? I mean, this has been fantastic. <laughs> but what a, I felt like we were just warming up there, Brian. So, yeah, yeah it's hard to believe. We, we've got to get you both back on. I know Dr. Purser's joining us again here in the spring. Dr. Laird, we've got to get you back on. We've got to get both of you back on in a forum like we did tonight. This was great. But I want to encourage everyone, go pick up your copy, Creating the Canon, Composition, Controversy, and the Authority of the New Testament. It's available at bookstores everywhere. For Dr. Laird and Dr. Purser, this is Dr. Brian Chilton saying God bless. 
And we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena like this. You've been listening to the Bellator Christie Podcast, brought to you by bellatorchristie.com. The views expressed on this podcast may not reflect those of Bellator Christie Ministries or its affiliates. This program is protected under Creative Commons copyright, all rights reserved. If you enjoyed this podcast, then be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review. Also, tell a friend. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you back the next time that we step into the arena of ideas.